All right, Ken. In this episode, we're going to talk about white supremacy. So those words just feel really heavy, and it's enough to trigger our fragility to the point where we want to run and hide. But as we've said many times, we need to develop the courage to face harsh truths in order to do the work to dismantle racism. Resma Menachem, the author of My Grandmother's Hands, refers to this as clean pain. He calls it the type of pain that mends and can build our capacity for growth. It's kind of like putting alcohol in a wound, right? Like it hurts like hell, but it accelerates the healing process. So before we can enter into clean pain, we need to make sure our minds and bodies are ready, including you and me. So before we dive in, I just want to take a few moments to settle our bodies, which is something that that Resma really says is essential for white folks to to do as much as possible. So, and, and also you listeners. So take a moment to just start by sitting with a straight back, your feet firmly planted on the floor. Take a moment to feel your feet touch the ground and just observe how your body feels. Next, take some long, slow, deep breaths from your belly. So your stomach should expand outward as you inhale and then slowly exhale out of your mouth. We'll just do this three times at your own pace. Right, so you should feel a little bit more settled than you were before and ready to be bold and build capacity. So let's do this. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Ken Lawrence, and me, Paul Johnson, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. All right, so following the lead of one of our favorite authors and scholars, Ibram X. Kendi, let's start by grounding ourselves in definitions. When we aren't on the same page with definitions, it can create a lot of confusion and misinterpretation when talking about a heavy and complex topic like this. So let's begin by defining white supremacy. I feel very ready to do this after taking those deep breaths and centering myself. So yeah. Let's go. Yeah. It makes a big difference. Yeah. And it, it, it makes you feel much more open and ready to receive some things that's not going to feel very comfortable. But as, as we talked about before, it's, it's essential for our, our growth and our development. So I turn to the Anti-Defamation League for help here. They break down white supremacy into four tenets. The number one being whites should have dominance over people of other backgrounds, especially where they may coexist. Number two is whites should live by themselves in whites-only society. Three, white people have their own quote-unquote culture that is superior to other cultures. And four, white people are genetically superior to other people. All right, so Paul, when I'm looking at these four... You know, it really makes me think about why we're having the conversation about white supremacy in episode 18 and not in episode like four is because it is such a trigger word, as you said, and it's so important for us to have that historical background when looking at this definition or else really that defensiveness can, can spring up. And all four of these points we have discussed throughout our process. And, you know, the Anytime I can just dip back into the history thing, I, I really like making connecting those dots. So if we look at this, the four tenets, the first tenet of whites should have dominance over people of other backgrounds, you know, talking about dominance, I mean, we've talked about a lot of clear examples of that, right? Slavery, 
to the failure of Reconstruction, to Jim Crow, to voter suppression, even the Supreme Court deciding who is considered white to have the benefits of being white. I mean, white people have been making decisions for black and brown folks forever in this country. And that really has to do with having the dominance to decide and dominance over those people. So we've talked about that tenet. The second, the live by themselves, right? Like whites should live by themselves in a white-only society. Obviously, redlining, you and I have talked a lot about, and also the landlord covenants. Even when redlining ended, there were these covenants where landlords would say between themselves, like, hey, we're not selling to any people of color in this neighborhood. If a person of color moved into a neighborhood, there was a fear that home prices would fall, and so the white neighbors would picket those uh, residents that were moving in. So, I mean, that is a clear example that we've talked about. The third tenet with white peoples having their own culture that is superior to other cultures, you know, the dominant societal norms that we have talked about, right? When we were talking about how to succinctly explain institutional racism and thinking about how we've really created these societal norms that white people have when they've been in power and how that's normative. And if others do not fall into those societal norms, they're less than, right? And they're treated less than. So we've talked about a lot of examples with that. And finally, you know, white people are genetically superior to other people. I mean, we have the real clear example that we talked about at the beginning of scientific racism. You remember that when like scientists would legitimately make up science and be like, look at the skeleton and look at the size of their brains. White people are simply biologically superior and smarter and black and brown people are less able to be civilized. Like they would make up this science stuff. Also, there's less dramatic examples of this where there's widespread belief, like unconsciously or not, and I think most of it is unconscious, is that black people are just more likely to commit crime or do drugs or not be motivated. You know, that all has mm. to do with genetic superiority. So we've talked about all of those things. So that's why I think, you know, white supremacy, it's it's such a trigger word. And I'm so happy we're having it in episode 18 because it really frames it up differently when you read it, isn't it? And, and now it's like, okay, yeah, those four tenets, I can think of examples for all of that as to why it's true. And you think about it then as a white supremacy that we've been around and socialized in the culture in which we've been in versus like the individual, I am a white supremacist or I am a bad person because of this. I'm glad that we can now look at it through that lens, which I think is really helpful. Yeah, 100%. That's really great context and, you know, historical background that shows that there's a trend, right? And and the way that these tenants show up will change and evolve from generation to generation, but the same foundational tenants will always be there. Mm-hmm. It's just how that manifests changes depending on the time period we're in. And, and it's important, too, before we dive in too much deeper, to again, think back to the positive white anti-racist identity, Right. Again, I don't have the definition in front of me, but having that identity is about acknowledging we're living in a society, a racist society, a white supremacy society, and at the same time finding how we can develop a positive, almost a new visionary sort of identity that works to dismantle those systems in our society. Totally. Like moving out of the status of for denial and defensiveness, mm-hmm. moving through the fifth status of guilt and shame yep. and into that open up acknowledgement. And kind of, as you continue to move up, 
taking that individuality out of it and how liberating that can be. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing that I think helps us to start to objectively look at white supremacy and it's important to look at it objectively because then we can really start to take it apart and dismantle it and, and, and disrupt it and get rid of it, right? Is thinking about how it's actually very pervasive, right? Which seems counterintuitive. It's like, let's think about how, how we see it everywhere and how it's in us and that's going to really motivate us. Like, but, it, but in fact, it's important to see it as a system, as a, as a structure, and how it's baked in our society that influences everything. So, uh, you know, most people think of the KKK or the Proud Boys when they think of white supremacy. But white supremacy is also thoughts like feeling like we're more intelligent or articulate than people of, of other races. Seeing a black person and immediately feeling in danger. Thinking that people of color should talk and act like, quote unquote, me. Being skeptical or nervous about a person of color being in a position of power, uh, or seeing a person of color in your neighborhood immediately assuming they don't live here. So these aren't examples I pull from the internet, Ken. These are things that I myself have thought. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. so it, it, it's important to be just as we say all the time. Confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism. Absolutely. That these things live in me. These were in, indoctrinated into me. I'm not going to look at these things and think about these things and then make the conclusion I'm a bad person, right? Because that's that's uh, living in that shame. But I, but it does make me realize that, that I'm not an exception, right? That, that it is more pervasive than we think. And that, that also these thoughts and beliefs could lead to even more high-level action or whatever you want to say. It's not just individual actions. So, you know, for example, like seeing a person of color in my neighborhood immediately assuming they don't live here could lead to an individual action of calling 911 on that person, right? But at a more more high level thing, it could lead to just completely unconsciously or consciously keeping, quote unquote, keeping people of color out of my neighborhood, right? Which is, which both of them are very harmful and destructive yeah. and, and both of them uphold white supremacy and they're, they all stem from the same belief. So that being said, now, you know, as white folks, usually our first instinct um, when we think about these things and and are faced with some of these beliefs and and racist thoughts is fragility, right? We go right into white exceptionalism, like, no, not me. Like, I've never, ever thought those things. Like, but the truth is that it's nearly impossible to avoid internalizing white supremacy. So before we go further, just take take a second to check yourself. Like, are you, do you feel like you're getting defensive and do you want to disengage from this conversation? Are you close to, to closing out the app right now and listen to something different, right? Are you remaining open and leaning into humility? So there's always a strong urge to claim we are the exception to any form of white supremacy and racism. But as Kendi says, denial is the heartbeat of racism. Confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism. Anyway, back to white supremacy. For this episode, we're going to focus on the third tenant that the Anti-Defamation League cites. Again, white people have their own quote-unquote culture that is superior to other cultures. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard the phrase white supremacy culture floating around. So before we dig in, let's again ground ourselves in a definition. As I've already mentioned, white supremacy is the belief that the white race is inherently superior to other races and that white people should have control over people of other races. Now, culture is defined as the patterns of learned and shared behavior and beliefs of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. Another definition for culture I'll offer up is the behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that a group of people accept, generally without thinking about them, and that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. So this was adapted from Tim Okun's article on white supremacy characteristics, which we'll talk about 
in depth in a minute. And you and I have talked about culture in a couple of episodes, which was feels like ages ago, but it was such a helpful discussion for me to think about my own culture of, you know, my yep. identity growing up in Minnesota and, and my family and what our interests were and how that's impacted myself. And so having that idea of culture is really important with identity work as well. So that was helpful for me to think about that conversation in this context as well. Yeah, and admittedly, it gets really messy to think about culture in terms of like your ethnicity or where your ancestors came from, even things like Midwestern culture. And then when, when we talk about culture in the terms of a race, right, like a, the white race, you know, it's, it can get really difficult mm-hmm. to, to decompartmentalize, to, to see all of that mixes together. So admittedly, this is a messy conversation and a nuanced conversation and very complex so if you're feeling as confused even as I am right now, like you, you, it, that's okay. <laughs> and I think we talked about in last episode 17 on the ladder of empowerment, I think status eight was mm-hmm. you start to recognize, or was it seven or eight? You start to recognize how complex racism and anti-racism yeah. work is and yep. that it's going to be messy and you're going to make mistakes. Yep. So just that's a good thing to think about too is I always like, that status thing is so helpful for me. So thinking about, hey, that's okay. If this feels complex and messy and hard, like let's let's power through that. Yep, yep. So if you put all this together, you kind of get Okun's definition of white supremacy culture, which is the explicit and subtle ways that the norms, preferences, and fears of European-descended people overwhelmingly shape how we organize our work and institutions, see ourselves and others, interact with one another and with time and how we make decisions. So in other words, white supremacy culture defines the beliefs, values, and behaviors that uphold and perpetuate white supremacy. Based on our observations in our consulting work and along with the help of many others, Okun created a list of white supremacy characteristics that make up white supremacy culture. There's fear, one right way, either or, denial and defensiveness, right to comfort and fear of conflict, individualism, progress is more and quantity over quality, worship of the written word, and urgency. So we simply just don't have enough time to get through every one of these, but we will pick out a few just to give you an idea. So we're going to talk specifically how white supremacy culture shows up in the workplace. So how does white supremacy culture carry out the express goal of upholding itself in order to maintain power over the races? Yeah, I think that's really helpful because of the historical background that we've discussed throughout our process and thinking about our individualism and what we can do. I know a lot of our listeners want to get concrete ways that they can be anti-racist and the workplace is just such a impactful way that people everybody can make a difference or start to see opportunities to make a difference. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm really excited for this conversation to think about the white supremacy culture specifically in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where a lot of us can really make an impact, right? Like that's where, for better or for worse in our society, like we spend a lot of time mm-hmm. at work, right? And then when we come home, we're mostly kind of with our families, maybe seeing neighbors from here and there. But for the most part, that area, that opportunity to influence is really at the workplace. Mm-hmm. So that's where, that's why we're kind of focusing on the workplace in this, in this case. So 
So we're going to talk about three white supremacy characteristics that that I chose that I feel are particularly potent. I mean, they're all potent. They're all damaging. They're all harmful. But I think especially considering what we've talked about in previous episodes, these ones really kind of align with previous discussions. So so the first one we're actually going to dive into is denial and defensiveness, which if you were if you listen to the last episode is one of the statuses and the, the ladder of empowerment for white anti-racism. So Akun defines this characteristic as, quote, the habit of denying and defending against ways in which white supremacy and racism are produced and our individual and collective participation in that production. So in other words, among white folks, so a culture, right, like something that's shared, we have created an accepted belief and behavior that normalizes denial and defensiveness when confronted with racism and white supremacy. So just, I mean, think about it for a second. Like, what is your automatic reaction to a situation when you see or experience racism? Is it to immediately confront it? No, right? It's usually to ignore it, to minimize it. And even if we do confront it, we usually have to really muster up the courage to do it. When one action feels natural and normal and another feels really, really hard, that's an indication that a cultural norm is present, Mm -hmm. right? So the norm here, if it's really difficult... And a lot of times we shy away from interrupting or acknowledging incidents of racism. That means there's a cultural norm present. And the cultural norm is that it's acceptable to deny it or to become defensive. So if I'm thinking about this correctly, like you said, status four, I believe it is, denial and defensiveness. We've talked at length about that and how impactful that is. So it's that status that then translates to the workplace And it's that status that's really prevalent and has ramifications in upholding those white cultural norms. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, think so like, so imagine you're sitting around a meeting with a bunch of people and, and the thing with white supremacy, it doesn't really matter most of the time, the races of the people in that room, right? Because white supremacy is the dominant cultural norm, right? So let's say someone says something like a microaggression or something overtly racist, right? The default reaction for everyone in that room, most likely, not all the time, but most likely is to probably think in your head like, oh, that was wrong or uncomfortable. But the norm is that no one usually says something in the moment, right? It's just usually ignored or people laugh nervously or maybe it's addressed, but it's it's done behind closed doors. You know, so so that's what that that cultural norm of denial and defensiveness that, you know, the default is to avoid confronting racism. Right. And and even like just this denial that that even happened. Like you might even have a thought of like, did, did they just really say that? Mm-hmm. Like, I know, I, I think they meant something different. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I think they're, you know, and their intentions were good. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like you start to minimize it. Right. And, and that is that dominant cultural norm, which, again, of course, upholds white supremacy and racism. Yep. So, you know, we, we see this time and time again in the workplace, or at least at least I have like leaders in HR personnel minimizing or completely denying issues of racism and white supremacy in the workplace. So, you know, I feel like most commonly this shows up in organizations buying into like the bad apple theory. We've heard that in, in terms of law enforcement, but it's the same with the workplace, too. So. You know, they have no problem creating a zero tolerance policy for anyone who says or does something blatantly racist. But when it comes to systemic racism, that's where many leaders get defensive and go into denial. You know, it's sort of like, sure, we know that every once in a while we may have a racist incident or a racist employee, but the organization as a whole is not racist. So this is sort of a macro denial of racism, essentially saying something isn't racist unless it meets two conditions. Number one, it's explicit. And number two, it's isolated, 
So this is how white supremacy culture maintains and upholds the system of racism because it keeps creating and recreating a false image that's being rooted out when reality is just getting stronger. So to really get rid of that white supremacy culture characteristic in the workplace, it is the opposite of denial and defensiveness. So it's starting to open up and acknowledge. Again, it's right. kind of, it correlates to the latter a little bit, yep. right? Like you start to create a culture where it's more acceptable to acknowledge these instances be able to say something, be able to kind of have constructive conversation. That's how you can really break it down or also right. just be in a vicious cycle of really not making much systemic change at all. Yeah. And I, you know, I see that too. Some organizations are moving to a place of accountability, but they're in guilt and shame. And so they're like, they're feeling shame and they're shaming each other. So the way that people get called out, like in a, in a meeting is not productive mm -hmm. and is done in a way to shame other people. So yeah, I really like using that uh, ladder of empowerment as a way to, to also dismantle some of these characteristics and to do it in a way that also doesn't continue to uphold white supremacy and think about what's actually going to change the culture, right? Like we, we need to understand what culture change is and how to change culture. Yeah. Right. And I, I think it's, it's just, it's not a, it's not a commonly known thing. It's a very difficult thing to do. Right. And it, it, it's not individual actions that will do it. It's, it's getting at the root and getting into like, you know, you know policies, you know, and, and not just policies, but, but also behavior change, accountability, you know, vulnerability. There's a, there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the second one we're talking about is individualism. So this is defined as the idea that we make it on our own without help by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. You know, it's a really toxic denial of our essential inter interdependence and the reality that we are all in this together. So you and I have been doing some research lately on the issue of white folks, especially white men, not engaging in DEI work in the workplace. And one thing we found was that the reason why a lot of white men are disengaged is that they see DEI initiatives as quote-unquote extracurricular, meaning it's not essential and it doesn't concern them. I think this echoes a common sentiment we hear a lot, that racism isn't my problem to figure out, or I've got problems of my own, or that it's something people of color just need to get over. Essentially, it's the individualistic belief that our humanity is not interconnected, or at least that connection is limited to those we most identify with. So it's like status three, be like me, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's really thinking about that individualism and the belief that we're not interconnected and that we're going to connect with people that identify like me. It's going to lead me to hire people who I identify with who have those same norms. And you can kind of get stuck in that. Mm -hmm. The reality, though, is that racism is harmful for everyone. So we don't have time to get into the details on this, but if you're interested, I'd recommend a couple books. One is Dying of Whiteness by Jonathan Metzl and The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. That'll really kind of give you a full picture of how racism actually is is harmful for all people, including white white, white people. So, And we had yeah. one intro episode of that idea of like how it is really beneficial for white men mm -hmm. to break down racism. And so mm -hmm. kind of pulling from that conversation too, that links up in the workplace very strongly as well. Yep. Yeah, so racism really is like a virus that infects everyone and everything. And it's everyone's responsibility to be anti-racist. In the workplace, that means it's not just the chief diversity officer or the DEI consultant's responsibility. It's the CEO's responsibility. It's the CFO's responsibility, the middle management's responsibility, IT's responsibility, and the janitor's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. 
you know, I think one of the unintended consequences of creating all these director of DEI positions is that it plays right into individualism. It implicitly absolves literally everyone else in the organization from thinking about or doing anything about racism unless they're told. Not only does it maintain the position of, quote-unquote, racism isn't my problem, unless you're a person of color, of course, but it places an enormous burden on that person in the DEI position. Get this. Guess what the average tenure for a chief diversity officer is in a corporate setting? I would have guessed, like, (laughs) five years. Yeah, I know you can see the notes, but yeah, it's 3.2 years. That's wild. Yeah. So, So these folks are burning out at an incredible rate. Because at the end of the day, it's just them. They're almost feeling completely alone and isolated in this work because everyone else in the organization is putting all the onus responsibility on that one person. And when it's not distributed as a priority throughout the organization, that person has probably seen no progress. So it's like the burnout plus the we're not making any progress here. It's just that's a tough position to be in if if it's an island that they're on. Yep, yep. So the third one we'll we'll talk about is progress is bigger, more, slash, quantity over quality. So again, Akun's definition here. The assumption that the goal is always more and bigger. An emphasis on what we can objectively measure is more valuable than the quality of our relationships to all living things. Another way of saying this is stuff over people, expansion over sustainability. So this would be an apt place to throw in the influence of our colonizer roots into the mix, right? So our ancestors, talking about European folks who came over to these states, to America, they were hyper-focused on growth, expansion, and conquest. Clearly, they had no regard for the quality of relationships with all living beings. And when we say living beings, we also mean plants and animals, White supremacy is all about dominance and power, no matter what the cost. And what do we attribute dominance and power to? More. If I have more than you, I am more powerful and more dominant. So white supremacy and its sidekick, I'll say colonization, simply just want to grow, to expand, to build, and to add on. So nowhere is this more clear in the workplace. Have you ever heard a business leader say, hey, you know what? I'm happy where we're at. We're not going to make any more products or try to obtain any more clients or hire any more staff or simply make any more money. Our bottom line will look the same year after year. This person would be laughed out of the room. They'd be fired by the board, ridiculed by business publications. It just simply would never happen. So, you know, I'm not saying that businesses shouldn't grow or expand, but what this white supremacy characteristic is talking about is that we completely overlook a metric that is just as important as the bottom line, the quality of relationships and the well-being of people. You know, when it comes to the quality of the experience for employees in the workplace today, it's it's bleak. So according to the research I found, only 36% of employees are engaged and 66%, so two out of three people have reported feeling burned out at least sometimes. And then just look at the country as a whole. Even though we've produced all the stuff that has promised to make our lives easier and better, a third of adults have signs of depression or anxiety. Now, again, I'm not saying progress is bad or quantity is bad. What I am saying is that we need to make it a normal operating procedure in the workplace to get a pulse on the quality of relationships and the well-being of people before growth happens. I even say that extends outside of the walls of the company. Will this growth be good for the planet, the community? If everything looks good, then it's go. 
The problem is that white supremacy culture influences us to just go, period, no matter what the conditions. There's not even a room for pause at all. So, you know, this can be especially tricky for nonprofits, which you and I have both worked in, right? Because justifying growth is really easy. Of course, it's a good idea to house more people or to save more trees or to feed more kids. But we also have to think about the well-being of the workforce and whether or not we're perpetuating white supremacy within the workforce. You know, those, th- that also has to be taken into consideration. Okay, so let me say this back to you. So building relationships or ensuring that employees, your colleagues, their well-being is at the forefront is really important. And company growth is not bad, right? In fact, we need companies to grow. But as long as it isn't harmful to our surroundings, which is like a big importance right now with climate change, for example, right? It's like, you know, every company, every new company particularly really has to say their impact on the environment, which Mm -hmm. hasn't existed in forever. And we find ourselves where we are because of that. So the point is that for companies to check this white supremacy characteristic of go, go now, go hard, build, grow before considering those other things, if companies slow down, and take care of their people and ensure that employees and their colleagues and teams are feeling supported, will they then perform better and grow more? You know, where I think that this could tie into like for all you business results people out there, it's important to not totally separate those two, I think, because it's important, you know, in our research we're doing about workplaces and white people and white men within them, you know, what is proven to make companies better is when you have more diverse teams, it Mm -hmm. improves problem solving, innovation, Mm -hmm. prediction, and like most companies if the tasks and teams have to do with problem solving innovation right like that's really important and for those diverse teams to work though and to get those benefits everyone has to feel a sense of like belonging and that they can be their authentic selves and so maybe you could think of it as if we slow down, ensure that we're taking care of our employees, ensure that we're creating these environments in which diverse teams can live together, which is the opposite of white supremacy culture is doing, mm-hmm. that then will create more productive and innovative and problem-solving teams. That has been proven. So that's like a way to look at the benefits to the business of slowing down mm-hmm. and saying like, hey, let's take a check on how our team doing How are our employees feeling? What is the culture? Are they able to work together? Because if you slow down and do that, you know, if you want to talk about capitalism competitiveness here, like you, Mm -hmm. your, your company will perform better than a company that does not do that and is only focused Mm -hmm. on go, go, go. It's, it's less sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. And it it calls on a question of like, what is the purpose of a business? You know, which of course everyone would say, well, to make money. You know, I would challenge that and say, yeah, it's to make money and it's to, I think, improve the lives of people, right? And and I think that's why I love the social businesses and B Corps because th- those businesses do take into consideration that we don't exist just to make money. We exist to actually make the planet healthier and to make people's lives better. And give people purpose. Yeah. To go yeah. even deeper. And if you want to give people purpose, you need to make sure that they're feeling supported and that they can be their authentic selves and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. And with this progress is bigger, more quantity over quality. What it also does pretty frequently is puts things like systemic racism as like something on the back burner. 
sort of like, you know, hey, we really would like to push these DEI initiatives. I know we got issues with microaggressions. I know we got issues with unconscious bias, but we just... We just don't have the time for it. We just don't have the budget for it. Like we gotta grow, we gotta expand. Like we have this merger coming happening. We got this opportunity, you know. It, so you know, we'll we'll get to that stuff when we get to it. And of course, it, they never get to yeah. it, right? Yeah. So that's that's kind of what it's this bias towards growth and expansion for products and money and putting everything else on the quote unquote back burner. You know, still pay pay lip service to it and say it's one of our strategic priorities. Yeah. But we know at the end of the day that the, the main priority and where all the resources go into is, is expansion and growth. And not to keep calling this guy out, but that note that you received on LinkedIn that we talked about a few mm. episodes ago, or we're not calling him out like this, you know, whatever, is he mentioned that, remember he said, have you ever stopped to think that companies are just trying to stay in business and make money? Yeah. Like you yeah. don't have time to right. stop and talk about racism or do employee resource groups mm-hmm. every day. So that right. was a, we saw that real world example from a individual who thinks that like, it's really just yeah. like we ha- we can't take away from the time to make money and stay in business. Yeah. It, it, and it just, it also reveals that we have this perception that there isn't room to talk about racism or white supremacy or liberation of people of color in the workplace. Like that's where money is made and business gets done. If you want to do all that stuff, do it on your own time. Right. I've seen this too on LinkedIn too. Like people post things about white supremacy and racism and you see comments of like, this doesn't belong on LinkedIn. Like this is a quote unquote professional business platform. So there's a real perception out there that like this talking about these things doesn't belong in business because business is all about progress and quantity over quality and and making money. And that's why I think kind of linking it to what I was saying about showing how it does improve companies and what companies are trying to achieve and articulating that goal and having that spread out through the organization from the top down. Mm. Because there's a part of me that thinks that that's necessary, that you can say, I mean, there's the side of me that of course is like, well, doesn't everybody want to do this and make life more equitable for everybody as like a person. (laughs) But then there's the other side of me that's like, yeah, for a business to invest millions and millions and millions of dollars into DEI initiatives, which are what companies are spending on DEI initiatives. I'm not so sure that it's articulated very well currently in in many cases of how what's that actually doing to the business and how is that driving results, but how are we defining results and why is that important right. and what is the impact we're making? And because there is a way to, you know, make that case, if you will, or at least make it clear. That's a better way of saying it, like clear why this does belong in the workplace. So when people post that on LinkedIn, it's like, this is really important in the professional world because this is what it does for companies. And and really trying to make that clear is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also, I like this characteristic because it calls in question, like, what is progress, right? Of course, our, our initial thought is progress means more money, more staff, more locations, more products. I'm making progress because we're getting all these more things, but progress also means looking at the quality of relationships, the the experience of employees, the impact on the environment, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's also like, are we making progress? You know, the DEI initiatives are we making progress there? Yeah, yeah. So it, it really sort of calls into question, ethically speaking, or, or whatever you want to call it, like the purpose of business and why why are there businesses? 
right? And really, really to be mindful of how, you know, capitalism can really creep in here and, and cause us to see it being all about expansion and growth. And, uh, you know, we can easily, we can easily justify some of those unintended consequences and harm on employees, because with, you know it's not a tenant of white supremacy, but one of the tools of white supremacy is dehumanizing people. We saw that with obviously with slavery, right? Like you have to be able to dehumanize someone in order to exploit them and use them for labor like that, right? And I, I would argue that that mindset still exists today. You know, it's obviously not the same, but that mindset's still there. Of like people are exploitable, and it's more important to think about profits over the well-being of people. Yeah. All right, that was a lot to take in. <laughs> and, you know, of course, it leads to the inevitable question, what can we do about it? Well, with racism, we're not going to be able to completely dismantle white supremacy in our lifetime, but we can begin to root it out in our areas of influence, namely our organizations. One way to begin that journey is to make a distinction between culture and dominant culture, because what we're talking about here with white supremacy culture is the latter, dominant culture. Again, culture is the way we do things around here. There's nothing good or bad about it, per se, it just is, right? Dominant culture, on the other hand, presumes that there's a right way and a wrong way to do something, and that one culture should be the standard that all cultures should assimilate into. I'm excited for this little conversation part of it, of how the dominant culture plays into it and how we think of it as things that are very much linked to how things are done around businesses in the U.S. But before we get to that, everyone's favorite website break. So just a reminder to all our listeners out there, maybe this is the first episode you've ever listened to. First off, welcome. Secondly, we have a website, www.themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work. We have blog posts. We have a newsletter that you can subscribe to. It's just the best way to kind of stay in the loop with what's going on with The Modern White Man. And we really love hearing from listeners. It's starting to happen more and more. It's so great to know that we have, as we learned last episode with the different statuses and collective action, there are other white male anti-racists out there trying to work on this. And people of all identities who are listening to this as well. We all we, we love hearing from all of you. So please feel free to reach out. So check out that website. Subscribe to that newsletter. So I want to share an example, thinking about this idea of dominant culture versus culture and non-dominant culture. And I, you know, came up with this the other day. I'm actually really proud of it. Um, you I was, came up with this? I came up with this. Yeah, I came. Up, I was doing a, a, a workshop with a group on the intercultural development inventory and talking about dominant culture. And I, I came up with this example, which I think really helps. I've thought about this a lot. So. I feel so, like I sounded surprised. I'm not surprised that you, <laughs> you are. You did very this. Capable. Wow. Wait, you? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate analogies and examples. It really helps to illuminate and kind of cut through all the complexity. So, all right. So let's say talking about a situation where there's okay, you have two people. Let's call them Brad and Amal. So they schedule a meeting together at 5 p.m. at a coffee shop. Brad shows up to the coffee shop at 4.50 because he knows it'll take a few minutes to get a drink, find a place to sit, and he wants to get ready for the meeting. Amal enters the coffee shop at 5.10. She chats with the barista for five minutes and sits down with Brad at 5.15. So just take a moment now, think about this simple situation, and think about who do you think was on time to this meeting and who was late. Okay. Got you got your answer in your mind? Brad. 
was trick, on time. Trick question. Mm. Neither of them were on time and neither were late. Yeah, most people would think Brad. I would think Brad. But in the context that we're talking about, both of them were acting according to their cultural values around the concept of time and timeliness. So in this case, in Brad's culture, showing up at the time the meeting was scheduled and being ready to get down to business is valued. Time is money, right? In Amal's culture, on the other hand, showing up sometime after the scheduled time and creating space for socializing is valued in her culture. She doesn't feel any urgency to get started at the scheduled time. So neither cultural value is good or bad. Neither is better or worse. If this was understood between Brad and Amal, neither of them would be irked by each other's behaviors. Now, let's throw the idea of dominant culture into the mix. Let's say that Brad's cultural value of timeliness is the dominant one, which I would argue is the case in the United States. The situation would play out a lot differently. Brad would be tapping his toe, and his frustration would be growing every minute past five. Amal would have rushed into the coffee shop all frazzled and apologetic, feeling embarrassed, and maybe even nervous about how Brad is going to react. So, when Okun says that white supremacy culture is the explicit and subtle ways that the norms, preferences, and fears of European-descended people overwhelmingly shape how we organize our work and institutions, see ourselves and others, interact with one another and with time, and how we make decisions, what she is saying is that white supremacy does not leave any room, or even recognize sometimes for that matter, other cultural norms and preferences that shape the way others organize their work, see themselves, interact with one another with time, and how they make decisions. Okay, so I think that this is a big can of worms, right? It's a big can of worms, I think, for me, myself, and also for a lot of people. I, I actually know an old boss of mine was like, hey, you guys should have an episode on white supremacy in the workplace with like showing up on time and deadlines because it's a super tricky thing. Mm-hmm. And I am on board with like how tricky I'm on the, tr- it's really tricky train. Yeah. And so this <laughs> opens a lot of worms for me because the first and foremost is I am like very much a time stickler. And it's like, I've just been so socialized that I shouldn't be late to anything. And if you are, it's bad, right? Right. And I'm bummed when people are not on time. And so why I think that this is a big can for me is confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism. Is like, I was really too strict with this in retrospect. So in a previous position, at a nonprofit, professional development was what I was doing with mm-hmm. young people who were the. It was like ninety percent uh, students of color and one hundred percent were on free reduced price lunch, so socioeconomically diverse. And part of my professional development was like time management is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Being on time is extremely important. And if you have an interview and if you're five minutes late, like that reflects terribly on yeah. you, right? So I think here's where I'm like internally. I don't know what the answer is. And I would love some clarity or even a conversation around it is like, that's true in our society, right? If you're five minutes late to an interview, that's not good. Mm -hmm. Like there's no other way around that. The chances of that person in the interview being like, hey, I'm status nine breaking down culturally. Like Mm -hmm. I get that your culture sees time different is like almost nothing. Yeah. So the first part of this, right, is super clear to me. We created this country on white supremacy, white supremacy norms, 
we're trying to break that down and your examples of white supremacy characteristics in the workplace, denial, defensiveness, the individualism, go, go, go. Like it's all super clear to me. This one's so much trickier and mm. I don't know why. So mm. it's like the two things that are hard for me is time management and deadlines. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, we have created workplaces that value time and value deadlines. So how do we balance those where we respect everyone's culture and we recognize that our culture here in the United States specifically is like, you know, be on time and deadlines are really important. Like that's how you can check in on progress on projects. And like a deadline is if I'm not meeting a deadline, be open and honest with your supervisor and talk about how you can get around it. Do you need more help? Do you need an extension? Like it helps me think about being goal oriented. So like, how do you balance those two things, right? Mm -hmm. It's really tricky in my mind. Yeah. I don't know the answers. Yeah, it is tricky, cause, but it speaks to how ingrained white supremacy is in our minds because we, we just automatically think being on time and meeting deadlines is good. So here's right? another wrench in that though, right? Yeah. So like in your example, which I think is a perfect example because I've been Brad so many times, <laughs> right? Like Brad has been me so many times. Yeah. Cause I, I just met with students every week right. for years right. in, in my past job. And to me, it's just, it's like disrespectful to be like, hey, let's meet at five. And then you're keeping somebody waiting for 15 minutes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I get, we've built companies on white supremacy and norms around that. But at what point is it like, we wanna make sure people feel respected or that their time is, you know, like we don't want somebody to just sit yeah. around and wait for 20 minutes if you're, so that's where like I get, there's like that yep. other layer of let's value each other's cultural views of timeliness while also like, should I just show up also 15 minutes late yeah. to make sure, you know what I mean? It, it's just like, it's such a rabbit hole for me. I'm clearly thinking yeah. out loud here. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really important conversation and I it struggle with it all the time too. And I think. So, I mean, to add on, if you think about Amal's position, if Brad's sitting there like, we need to go, 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 that's disrespectful to her, mm -hmm. right? It's dis disrespectful to her culture. Mm -hmm. And again, the point here isn't one is good or, good or bad or better than the other. The point is is, is the respect and the, 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 that there is no dominant culture. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the point here, that there's room for both. And, and yeah, lots of people kind of push back and say like, well, then, then how do you manage that situation? How do you, which, which culture do you respect you know, like, but that's the point. The point is that there, there's room for both and there's acknowledgement of both. And there isn't this presence of a dominant culture, which assumes that one is better than the other. And there's just zero room for other cultural expressions, right? Yeah, it, it's it's just you know what white supremacy is about dominance is about power it's about there is only one right way that's one of the characteristics there's one right way to do things mm -hmm. right so with time there's one right way to do it and that's to be on time mm -hmm. there's no other possibilities right to do it right when it comes to being on time so that is a white supremacy culture that upholds like this is the 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 one way to do it which causes everyone else with all their cultural values and beliefs and practices to just kind of be like, well, I have no choice but to assimilate into this and, and even feel like what I'm doing is bad, mm -hmm. right? And my cultural values are bad or wrong, mm -hmm. which just then upholds that white supremacy as good, right? What white supremacy is all about, like, we are best. Yeah, right. So it's it's almost this hierarchy of, of cultural values that's, that's upheld by that. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And then so to make 
All right, so I'm Brad, and let's say we have a company or I have a team. Is the answer then to communicate in a way that we kind of see what each of us value or what our company values are and ensure that people are feeling heard as well? You know, there has to be wiggle room on both sides exactly. then, right? Yep. Like, like me as Brad... I have to have some wiggle room and also the other side has to have some wiggle room, right? Where we have yep. to feel like we're both respected. Cause like if I'm like, okay. And then I'm waiting for 15 to 20 minutes for every meeting, I'm just going to be annoyed, yep. right? It's the way I've been yep. socialized forever. But I like the way that you said it doesn't make, make it right. Right. So like is proper communication the answer? Like, you know yes. what I mean? Yep. That's exactly it. So yeah, again, I think a lot of people, maybe even some white people too, would be like, just kind of go to the extreme and be like oh all white culture is bad let's get rid of it like let's let's just deny our own cultural values and be like it's bad let's adopt other cultural values right no that's not the answer it's still maintaining your cultural values and respecting your own cultural values and identifying with those and other cultural values so yeah you're absolutely right it's communication there might be a situation where you need to be on time for this meeting right. right for whatever circumstances for another meeting it's like oh let's start whenever Right. The, the the point is that there's room for both. Yeah. And that there's the, the, the perception isn't that one is better than the other or one is more dominant than the other. Yeah. I think what we're seeing in the workplace is this dominance that no matter what the situation doesn't matter what the situation or whatever type of meeting it is, you are on time. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Right. Right. That is white supremacy culture. That's dominance. And I think it's helpful, yeah. too, to think about white supremacy culture in the workplace as the dominant culture, you know, the dominant societal norms that we've talked about and how I like how Okun says European descended people mm-hmm. who then we decided, as we've talked about in the historical foundations of this country, to use the racial hierarchy and the gender hierarchies to create these racial classes with yeah. white and male at the top. And so really like the white supremacy culture, I feel like people have such a kickback reflex and to that. Mm-hmm. It, it's helpful to be, you know, if somebody did, we could be like, hey, it's it's really that dominant cultural norms that are just seen as superior and white people have been in power forever and yeah. have made race the issue at hand here. Yeah. That's why they're white supremacy. You know, that's helpful for me too, to mm-hmm. think about it that way. And it, it aligns with our conversation that we've had in a previous episode on like toxic masculinity, right? Like men should be able to f- feel free to express themselves however they want. Mm-hmm. Right. But if the dominant norm for masculinity is these certain things, right, mm-hmm. that's when it becomes toxic and men can't feel like they're able to express themselves however they want. It's the yeah. same thing with culture. Like if they don't feel like they're able to express their cultural values however they want that align with their upbringing, then they're experiencing a dominance yeah. of cultural values. Right. And they feel trapped and, and, you know, kind of cornered, if you will, rather than be able to freely express themselves. You know, that's hopeful. And confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism. I got a couple confessions here. Okay. So the first is... I'll stick to this culture in the United States of I still like I was so I thought like my job was professional development, right? Like I've always considered myself very professional in the workplace, which I've started to like ease up on because I've I think I've grown on this ladder and started to recognize a lot of it is being bamboozled into this like white supremacy dominant cultural norms 
that I, I just was so, so like I went to a military high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you're late to anything, it's demerit. Like they, they pride themselves on this professional development. Yep. And I brought that to different cultures here right. with my nonprofit job all the time. Yep. And there's like a specific couple, you know, sometimes I'm like, dude, come on, man. Like, like I had really good relationships with all of them and we were all super tight, but you know, they knew I was always like, remember, we've got to be on time. Mm-hmm. We're setting up a meeting. We're going to go meet with this company together. We've got to be on time, got to be on time. And like, I just didn't go about it probably the best way I could have. But there's one specific one where mm. I was like 25 and I had my first direct report. Mm. So I'm young and he was late to everything. And he identifies as a, a black man. And it was at this nonprofit and he was, you know, a couple, three years younger than me. And I like, he was, it just like was so unprofessional to me. And I remember like I took him aside, like I prepped with my boss of how to address it. Yeah. It was very yeah. formal and yeah. very serious and like, in retrospect, so unfair. And he and I are very tight to this day. Mm. And I want to like apologize to him or, you know, I and be like, at least be like, dude, I was so unprepared for that conversation. Mm. And like, it just was not fair. I, mm. you know, it's talking about like, I was an early status of mm. like having that conversation and kind of thinking like, be like me. That was like a status three yep type of yep. situation we had yep. so there's that one that like have, has always eaten not me for like the past few years and it's like i probably could handle that all that better and thinking about it this way is helpful and that open communication yep. the other example this one is just like <laughs> well this is ridiculous so i was in the <laughs> peace corps and i was in guinea in west africa so i was there from eight when i graduated college from age 22 to 25 so i was a young kid and I was tasked in a town to like build up their entrepreneurial programs. And one of the things that, and you know, I started like a couple cool businesses and one of the consultancies that I helped start is still going today. Well, one of the things I did is I created an entrepreneurship course at the university that I taught. And so I taught at the university, all these seniors and I told them on the onset, it was entrepreneurship, and I was like, we're going to learn about what we want to do is formalize the private sector. That was the big ask. Mm. And I was like, one of the big things we're going to teach is professionalism, right? So it was very clear going into it, and I was like very clear, like time is a big thing. I start Mm. class at four. Mm -hmm. If you're late, the doors are closed. Mm -hmm. Like you can't come in. Like this is, I'm bringing my dominant culture into a place where that culture isn't even dominant. Right, right. So that's like straight white supremacy like that's so what i would do in Ghanaian culture is like in your example amal who is 15 to 20 minutes like everything they socialize it's just the way they did things drove me crazy because it was so against everything that i had done and how i'd been socialized and taught Mm -hmm. and i still remember my class was so popular that i would have like 200 seniors in this class that i'm teaching Mm -hmm. and at four o'clock i'd lock the doors (laughs) right and so like the the students thought it was hilarious like i'm only a few years older than these kids and like you, you know but i would have 20 students outside knocking waiting and i would teach like the first 20 minutes of the class and it was kind of like a joke like every, you know everybody's like kind of laughing because it ha- and then i would open the door and be like oh did you did you all want to like come in and like you know i was like what's the number one thing with like you yeah, know and yeah. and god it's like looking back at that it's like i i should not have done that way clearly mm-hmm. like 
I brought in what I thought was the way to do business. And it wasn't even mm. the way they did business there. Mm. And so like, there's mm. a whole, that's like that, that could be a rabbit hole of like, was I yeah. too young to, you know, whatever. Yeah. But like, I think about so clearly my stream of consciousness that you and my listeners are dealing with is like, <laughs> this is something I've thought a lot about and struggle with a lot because how, how do we do all that? And then the other thing is with deadlines. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like the other big thing is like deadlines are really, I think make a lot of sense even today. Like the time management thing is easier for me to now see and be flexible with, but like deadlines, it's like, it must just be communicate. You still have to get stuff done on, yeah. you know, when we say we're going to get it done. Like, yeah. but you just have to maybe set up boundaries with or commun- open communication about like, how's it feeling along the way? Do you need more support? Is that deadline doing good? Like, mm-hmm. so, cause I've had a lot of people be like the deadlines, white supremacy, mm-hmm. like they mm-hmm. have to go away. Deadlines yep. have to go away. Right. And the business, my ex boss who was t- talking about this was like, well, how do you get stuff done? Yeah, And at a big corporation, this black woman was like saying that having deadlines as white supremacy is ridiculous. How would we get anything done? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. like you even have that. So anyway, that's my long stream of consciousness about like yeah. why this is, it's important and really tough and something I'm clearly thinking a lot about. Yeah. Well, that's really great stuff. And I appreciate your being candid and being transparent and being willing to yeah confess, which is, yeah, yeah, which is great. I mean, it really reveals that we're all susceptible to this and it's all based in good intentions. And y'all, we've, because the good intentions are based in this idea of dominance and best, like, you know, we're doing this to help other people. Right. Mm-hmm. But we really need to question that. Is it, is it really helping other people or is it really an attempt to kind of spread white culture across the globe or wherever we're at, even our organization? Yeah. Right. So, so that's a that's a big that's a big question to to ask ourselves. But a, but a critical question to ask ourselves is just always being mindful and considerate of what are the cultural values are present and that that, that they are. Yeah. I mean, it's not right. it's not right. a question right. of if or if there is there always are cultural differences present. And how do we honor those and how do we, yeah, how do we honor those? And that's the hard thing to do. The easy thing to do is just to say, this is what's best and everyone's got to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No questions asked. That's yeah. easy. Yeah. Right. But it's also harmful. Right. The difficult thing is to say, how do we honor all these cultural differences, including our own? Right. Like, yeah. again, like it's not about throwing out some of our own cultural values. Like even like individualism versus collectivism. Both have their place. Yeah. Both have times when they're important and other times that they're not. Right. It's a both and. Either or is one of the white supremacy characteristics. Yeah. Right? It's like feeling like you have to choose between one cultural value or the other. No, it's both. Right. Of course, that makes it more complicated and nuanced and difficult. But, you know, that's that's the way humans are. Right. So I think white supremacy wants to streamline things. It wants to put people into boxes and be able to then accelerate progress. Yeah. Right. And, and it thinks that by getting everyone in line with one thing, then progress will take off, which it might. Yeah. Right. Like that might create acceleration and growth, but at the expense, obviously, of people's humanity. What I need to do as a follow up to this conversation or what I want to do, well, I like writing out things and like making things make sense in paragraph form is maybe work with you and get your thoughts on that idea of how to like really frame that up. Cause I had such a stream of consciousness and I want to do the yeah. work to think about that specifically with deadlines too. And yeah. like, 
if there's a company or a team, how can we ensure that we're meeting our combined goals, but we're all on the same page yeah. and we're respecting everybody? Yeah. And even like, <laughs> we don't have time. Yeah. I could go down yeah. so many rabbit holes. Yeah. But like another one is like, well, then do I just be lenient on people with my or, or that have different cultures or identities that I am? But like, what about white men who are late to everything? Yeah. You know what I mean? Is that like, like I get it's probably the same conversation that you have to have with everybody, mm-hmm. but then I can't mm-hmm. then be like, okay, you know, Amal, I, I recognize that you're right. a different culture, but like Jason, yep, dude, come you on, gotta you got to be, be on yeah. time. Let's yeah. go. Like that can't be the yeah. case. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I totally get that. It's not easy. It's messy. And the reason it's difficult is because it's not a norm. Like we don't have these conversations in the workplace. The workplace isn't designed to allow for these nuances. Like the workplace, again, back to progress is bigger, more, and quantity over quality. The workplace over many, many generations and many hundreds of years have been has been designed for efficiency. Yeah. Right? So, so you are working, even thinking about that dilemma works against a cultural norm within the organization that there's no room for that. There's no room for individual needs and cultural values hmm. because... We don't have the time to to address that, or there isn't isn't fair to allow people to, to bring themselves fully to their work in different ways. Like if we want to get things done and get things done fast, everyone's just got to fall in line. Yeah, right. right so, right. yeah, at the end of the day, it will be a challenge. But whoever said that dismantling white supremacy is going to be easy work, right? <laughs> well, so. it's on the status, right? Like seven or eight, I think we said it. It's going to be complex. Yeah, it's going to be messy. We're going to make mistakes. And so that's the complexity is part of it. You're right. Like it's to break it down. Yeah. So to bring it all together and returning to the idea of creating a positive racial identity, you know, this is really where we can use our power and privilege as white folks to speak up about white supremacy culture and advocate for action to be taken. If you're a manager, for example, you can recreate the culture in your team. If you're a leader, lots of opportunity there, of course. If you're an individual contributor, you can investigate how white supremacy culture influences how you do your work. And for something like this, you're really going to need allies. It's not something one person can bear. And remember, individualism. So once you really understand white supremacy culture and characteristics, it can be easy to spot them showing up in your workplace. But just as the case with racism, we should start by seeing it in ourselves and learning how we can unlearn white supremacy in our own lives and work. One book I'd recommend is Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad to help. But something like this is just an everyday practice of awareness and an everyday practice of humility, of of admitting to ourselves when it shows up, where it shows up, and being able to do the the difficult and, and courageous work to dismantle white supremacy in our lives. I'm feeling excited to work on this myself. Like this was a this was really helpful. I'm really happy that you had this episode because I'm I'm like fired. You know, I, I think I I've gotten to a point where I see these as learning opportunities yep. and it fires me up. So I'm like excited. I want to just start looking into <laughs> different ways to start breaking this down in me and the organization and everything. Yeah, I think that's important. It starts with ourselves. It starts with looking inward, and then our actions a lot of times just extend outward because of that. So, yeah. So until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, 
and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better. Thank you.